0: Rules and restrictions may apply.
1: A podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like
0: nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're gonna do this forever. I wish I
1: paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm gonna be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just I don't get it. Welcome,
0: welcome to SmartPeoplePodcast.com.
1: Hello, and welcome to Smart People Podcast. This is Chris. I'm still sick. Arguably, I probably sound worse. But at least I still have that baritone. Yep, my kids, they just pass germs around, and that's the story of my life. But don't worry, I'll be okay. What you came here for was an excellent episode, and that's what you're going to get. Our guest this week is Chuck Ruby. Now, if you don't know Chuck, you need to go back and listen to episode 3, 32, that was the first time we talked to Chuck and for your awareness, that episode is the second most downloaded episode of all time on our podcast. So there's Brene Brown with something like half a million downloads. And then there's Chuck with like a hundred thousand or something around there. I mean, it's, it's crazy that a guy with at the time, no book, no website, struck such a nerve, and I think it's a mix of the topic we discuss, which is the myth of mental illness, as well as his style, his delivery, his no-nonsense, his eloquence, and his knowledge. So excited to have Chuck back on the show, and this time we get to plug his book, which has been over 15 years in the making. It is called Smoke and Mirrors, How You Are Being Fooled About Mental Illness an insider's warning to consumers. Chuck is a psychologist and a coach in a private practice. He earned his PhD in 1995 at Florida State University. He is a retired U.S. Air Force lieutenant colonel with 20 years of military service as a criminal, counterintelligence, and counter-espionage special agent. As I mentioned, Chuck has one of the most unique takes I've heard on the idea of mental illness, and it has fundamentally changed the way I live my life, the way I think my thoughts, and the way I interpret my reality. That is not hyperbole. I have had many conversations with Chuck since we first interviewed him. I consider him a friend, a mentor, and a bit of a sage. If you'd like to know my biggest takeaways from this episode, make sure you sign up for our newsletter that is re-releasing. We are putting new time and energy into it. Go to smartpeoplepodcast.com, scroll to the bottom, sign up for the newsletter there. Maximum once a week, takeaways from the episode, reactions to guests, and more. Let us know what you think, gmail.com, and let's get into it. We are talking to Dr. Chuck Ruby about his new book, Smoke and Mirrors, how you are being fooled about mental illness, and insider's warning. To consumers. Enjoy. Well, Mr. Slash Doctor Chuck Ruby, welcome
2: back to the show. Pleasure to be here.
1: I feel like it's a much different environment. You know, last time I don't think I knew you at all. Now I feel like I know you. It's a completely different vibe.
2: Well, we're talking to each other now too. We're yeah. not just Listening to each other and these these disembodied voices and uh, it does help quite a bit.
1: Yeah, and what you're referring to for the listeners that don't know is about eight months ago we went back to a video where we went to video interviews. Where last time you and I, I talked, it was just audio, so it is a much different experience. Actually, Chuck, you know what? You're the perfect person to ask this. I've been thinking about this for a while. I kind of like audio only better when there's a video component. I feel like I have to focus on two things as opposed to one. When it's just audio, I would just kick back, often close my eyes, and I would live out this conversation in my mind. Where with the visual component, I'm increasingly aware of how I look, how they look, their facial expressions, mine, what they mean. And at times, I feel like it pulls away from my ability. To focus on exactly what we're discussing. Mm-hmm. How many people do you think are, their lives are modified by the senses that they have and the way they feel they should come off and, and seem to others using those senses?
2: I imagine a bit over 8 billion people. Yeah. I just think this is, a, you know, their safety in anonymity and the less modalities we have access to the more anonymous we feel. So if you, like this this environment here, we can see each other, we can hear each other. I can see your hair and I can make private comments about, oh my gosh, and you know that. And you're, you're concerned about my judgment of you and I'm concerned about your judgment of me. Th- that does take up more bandwidth. But if we were to go to the other end of the spectrum and we're just writing emails back and forth, there's none of that. It's completely almost anonymous, but it's anonymous in a way that you it's hard for you to judge me other than from my written words. So as we get higher on the number of sensory modalities, we have more and more reasons to be concerned about being judged, which is something that everyone is concerned about.
1: You know, a lot of that does lead into what I want to talk about today, which is just comfort in dealing with emotions and discomfort. because when you sit back and think about what we just talked about, all it is is two people having a conversation. What is it about the human experience that puts added weight and analysis behind how others are judging us and what we feel? And it can often be uncomfortable feelings and therefore we avoid them.
2: Well, we're, we are we um, are affiliative creatures. So we're mammals basically, right? And if you notice, it, it, look at it from an evolutionary standpoint. Mammals, when mammals fo- uh, came on the scene, they started taking care of their young. They didn't just lay eggs and leave. Mm. And, they, and, the, and the young stayed with the adults longer before they were independent and moving out on their own. And I think that just reflects this, this desire we have, this great desire we have to be with others and to be accepted with others, to affiliate And so with that, and there's a lot of comfort in that, but with that comfort, there's a price. And the price is maybe you are not accepted. And I think this is just, it's just ingrained in us. Uh, It's a tacit rule or assumption that we live by where we really desire a lot to be liked, to be accepted, to be welcomed, to be part of the group. And it's terrifying to... To think of the possibility that we aren't going to be welcomed, and that's that's what we feel. We feel that that fear, um, that shame. I mean, it's like a mixture of fear and shame about myself and whether I'm good enough to be with you, and whether I'm good enough to be part of the group and therefore be protected, to be um, secure in a sense. Yeah. Right. You know, when an infant comes on the scene. That's the big challenge is to form an attachment and sometimes that doesn't happen because of how the parents or the environment interfere with um, the parent's willingness to, to affiliate with the infant, to connect, to look in their eyes, to respond, to smile, to comfort. All of that teaches the infant that they're accepted. And in some situations that doesn't happen and the infant grows up into an adult who feels very insecure. Uh, very antisocial, very asocial. Uh, They don't get that experience and that sense that I'm accepted, so I must be good enough.
1: I don't think hardly anybody gets that, even the ones raised right. I don't know. I, I feel like it's a product of today. And something you said makes me wonder if society is perpetuating that. You mentioned emails. I've thought a lot about this with the pandemic. The more people I've talked to, the more people... I've watched on YouTube or TikTok or whatever, talk about, I never want to go back to the office because I don't want to interact with those people. Or the pandemic has taught me how to enjoy myself more. Mm -hmm. Is that a good thing? Or are we continually trying to find comfort by ignoring discomfort, which could be other people's judgment? As simple as that.
2: Yeah, the pandemic experience has taught us a lot. Uh, everything from business operations, uh, profitability in business, to interpersonal issues like this. Uh, I know within the psychotherapy field, it, has, it, it taught me something. I was, when we started this distance teletherapy, um, I was kicking and screaming going into it. I didn't think it was going to be sufficient to actually do the kind of work we do in person. But I was surprised at how well we can, you know, we can assess another, we can connect with another this way that we're doing right now. It's not the same as being in person. It's definitely the case. And there's things that are missing when you're not in person. There's just a different ambiance of the, of the process. But the same thing with this. There's a different ambiance here that you don't get in, in, in person. Now, for instance, you can see into my home. With therapy, it's the same way. I can see into their home. They can see into mine. It, it, it adds this connectivity that isn't there when you're in a sterile office face-to-face. Right. But it, then it does not have the connection that you do have when you're in person. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's this issue of uh, what do we do about technological advances? Are they bad or are they good? I think they're both. There's There's benefits and there's prices to pay. Uh, I think I've told you before, maybe in the previous podcast, my great-grandmother, who was born in 1868, was complaining, complained about the telephone. And when it was created, that she thought the telephone was going to be the downfall of civilization because people weren't going to be personable anymore. They were just going to pick up this, this machine and not walk down the lane to talk to the neighbor, right? But what's funny is now we have it reversed a bit. Now people are complaining that we write letters, emails, and we don't pick up the phone to talk to people. They see it as the opposite. It's more personable to talk on the phone with someone. I don't think either one's any more personable. It's just it's a it's a dragging our feet into new technological advances that are here to stay, and the question is how do we how do we take advantage of them and what costs are we willing to pay and how do we manage how we use them? Yeah and with for psychotherapy it's that's the the issue how do we manage that
1: I think that is the point the the management piece because i do worry that we're really going towards the matrix like the more and more we bring our experiences online the less reason there is to leave so it used to be right the world was shrunk to your house and your office and maybe a couple of bars or whatever hobbies you do. Right. And now it's shrunk. Okay. No longer the office. So that was 50% of your, your time. And then we'll get VR and all this. And it just keeps shrinking. I mean, one of the reasons we bought this house was because I wanted the, the office that it has. And now I'm sick of it because I've spent so much time in it over the past two years. So what happens with that? You know?
2: Right, it's a challenge. Maybe the answer is unknown. Uh, It's just we are going into this blind in a way, and we'll figure it out as we go. It's kind of like that with personal emotional problems. There's a sense of, um, I call it faith. Uh, Some people don't like that word, and, and by no means do I mean just a religious faith, but some kind of faith in going into the world blind in a way. We don't see everything. There are blind spots. But there's, if, if we can develop a sense that we'll make it, no matter what happens. So we prepare, we prepare, but at some point we just stop and play the game. And um, if we have this sense of faith that we'll make it no matter what happens, uh, that's key in coming up with some sense of contentment in life. A lot of people, unfortunately, try to know for sure, and that's where they f- fall on their faces, because you can't. But they keep trying and they keep trying and we call it anxiety. I was just
1: about to say, would those people happen to be the anxious ones? Cause I feel like you're describing me to an extent. (laughs) (laughs) Well, look, that's what I want to get into. So first of all, welcome back to the show. I wanted to ask you this. I, I think, I don't know if you know this, our listeners probably don't. We last spoke, it was October of 2019 And that episode is now the second most downloaded episode in the history of our podcast, which I find so fascinating that the only person ahead of you is Brené Brown, her episode's been running for nine years at this point. And I find it interesting because at the time you didn't even have a book. I don't even know if you had a website. What do you think it is about this topic of the realities of mental illness? That draws so much attention.
2: I don't know. I'm hoping that it is, an, but to the extent that people tuned in to listen to the podcast, they may have heard of this viewpoint before and wanted to know more about it, because the viewpoint that I present is a, a freeing, enabling kind of a viewpoint, and it, it helps us get around the problem of mental illness by seeing it as an illusion. And perhaps that what, that's what drew people to this. Because frankly, I think everyone listening now, you and I together, everyone in the world has a mental illness. The, the, the definition of mental illness is so broad and so ambiguous that I could, you know, depending on how I interview you, I can tag you with a diagnosis. All that means is that this concept of mental illness is talking about emotional distress and difficult behaviors that we all go through to one degree or another. The ones who aren't diagnosed mentally ill are just the ones who haven't sought out help because they're afraid about this thing. And so hopefully I think my podcast, the last podcast, was um, a solution to that for people as to how to understand the issue outside of that medical model, outside of that what I would argue is a moral model of judging people as bad people or wrong people or abnormal people. And none of us want to be bad, wrong, and abnormal.
1: So I just want to let the listeners know, since the last time we spoke, you put all of these thoughts, some of which we talked about in the last episode, some of which we haven't, into a book. So it's called Smoke and Mirrors, How You Are Being Fooled About Mental Illness. And I imagine that's decades of your work, your thinking along these lines, why did you feel now was the time to put it into this book?
2: Well, it's been a long time coming. It just isn't just now I decided to write the book. I've been writing the book since about 2005. Mm. And over time, um, my experience in the profession demonstrated to me that some of the ideas that I had, and by the way, I'm not the first to think of these things. There's a lot before me that, that have written and talked about this main issue. But I started to become more comfortable being open and honest publicly about my views because um, being in a, in the profession and speaking negatively about the profession can be professionally dangerous. Yeah, but I just became you know actually working one on one with people and seeing it in real life and not just in reading it. I became convinced of these views and felt more comfortable that um, I should, you know, tell people about it. So this book was intended for consumers mainly. Now I'm I'm in a private practice, so I don't rely as much on any kind of system as others do who are in universities or in agencies where they are required to work a certain way. I I have the flexibility to do that. So that has helped me.
1: For those listening, and I'll say this in the intro, you're going to have to go listen to the first conversation with me and Chuck to to catch up to here. If you don't, I think you will be uh, very much behind on what happens next because it is not the most commonly discussed topic. Chuck, give us the quick executive summary about the first part of the book, and therefore what we talked about in the last episode.
2: Basically, it's that, first off, the thing we call mental illness is very real. It does exist. It's a big problem. But it's not an illness. Not an illness, at least as most people understand illness. So illness, commonly known, is about something wrong with the person, something in the body or in in the mind, or something is... Um, not working right. That is not true with mental illness. There's no evidence of any of that, despite more than a century or almost, well, more than two centuries now of attempts to find some kind of scientific evidence that the problems like depression and schizophrenia and on and on have to do with something not working right in the body, some dysfunction in the person. So, What the the theme of the first part is mental illness is not an illness, even though it's a big problem, but that the the mental health industry has worked really hard to use language, pseudoscience, um, uh, illogical uh, reasoning to portray it as such. And it's even in the language. We're talking about what mental illness, Mm -hmm. but I'm saying mental illness isn't illness. So why is it called mental illness? The, the the phrase itself even gives this false impression. So that's the first part of the book, is that it's not an illness. Um, and I go through some historical um, uh, accounts of how people dealt with the problem throughout the centuries and uh, how it remains today, uh, some, <clears throat> some uh, exploration of psychotherapy and its benefits, exploration of psychiatric drugs and what they do and what they don't do. Uh, Keeping in mind this non-medical model that I'm trying to present to people.
1: We're going to start off from there. And what I hope to do in this episode is talk more about once you come to that realization, how can you change the way you live? How can you change the way you think? How can you help those that you love who are struggling with whatever we call this? What do we call this now, by the way, if it's not mental illness?
2: Human problems. Okay. Yeah, the part of the problem is we're looking for a word to call it. We already have words to describe it. It's sadness. It's um, responses to fear. It's, it's just being human. So, you know, humans operate basically on a, um, I present it as like a, a three-tiered, three, uh, I guess you will, model of A, B, and C. Just think of A, B, and C. A is the context within which you live. So it includes everything you've done in your life up to this point, your history. It includes your current environmental circumstances, your financial settings, your um, social connections, everything up to this point. Now, in response to that, A, there's B, and B is the emotional reaction to that. So I might feel sad, or I might feel ashamed, or I might feel disgusted, or whatever the feeling is. It's, I might also feel, by the way, excited and, and, and feeling joy and feeling proud and, and good feelings. But when the B, the emotion, is bad, when it feels bad, when it hurts, we naturally try to get rid of that hurt. And that's C. So C is what we do to try to get rid of B. The, the solution is to, try, is to try to focus on C not B. So sadness and shame, they aren't problems. They're not the problem. They're the answer. They're actually pointing at the answer. C can be the problem. And C includes things like depression and anxiety and schizophrenia and drinking and whatever, you know, and, and all the things that we do in an attempt to get rid of the bad feeling B. Mm. Right. Yep. But the B is the and B is meaningful. It tells us what's going on in our lives, even though it's hurtful. And if we have the willingness to tolerate B and kind of listen to it, then we can know what's going haywire in our lives. It's not what's going haywire in us. It's going. It's what's going haywire in the in our life in our world. And then C might be something that can be done to re, to eliminate B for good. Or we might find that B can't be eliminated. Like when someone dies, you can't eliminate the grief. It just is there, and it eventually subsides, but only when you ignore it in a way, or only when you tolerate it, you let it be. The more Mm -hmm. you fight against grief, the harder it is, the more painful it becomes. When you accept it, right, and everyone's aware of this process who's lost a loved one, when you accept the grief, it, it paradoxically it kind of fades away over time. When you fight against it, it gets stronger. Hmm. So again, C is what we do. and I see mental illness, the, the diagnostic idea of mental disorders, mental illness categories, they're part of C, not B, right? So we do anxiety. we do depression. and I think I'd mentioned this in the last podcast. I explained this idea. Depression doesn't happen to us. We don't get depression. We do it. And then we feel what it's like when we're doing it, which just adds back to be more painful feelings. And then we react to those increasing feelings with more depression. And on and on it goes. It spirals.
0: And now a break for one of this week's sponsors. This week's episode is brought to you by Sandland Sleep. Trying to get good sleep shouldn't feel like training for the Olympics. Whether you're a busy parent or you're just trying to stick to your workout routine, good sleep is essential to help you get there. Enter Sandland. That's the problem that they're out to solve. Unlike other sleep aids, Sandland doesn't just knock you out. Instead, it actually works to improve your natural circadian rhythm. They have plant-powered ingredients that work with the body's natural functions to induce a state of relaxation for grogginess-free sleep. Other sleep aids can be too strong. They can knock you out, but most people don't know that that doesn't train your body to sleep better the following night. It leaves it drowsy and dependent instead. That's why Sandland aims to train your body to relax and drift off to bed softly with its formula. They have two products that target the two areas people struggle with most. First, the fall asleep, which aims to get you to drift off to bed within 20 minutes. And then there's stay asleep, which is a time-release formulation It helps you sleep so you don't need to worry about waking up in the middle of the night. Sandland has given our show a special discount for 15% off by using code SMARTPEOPLE15. Sandland doesn't do sales, but if you subscribe, you'll automatically get a 20% discount. The best part is the good sleep guarantee. If your first purchase doesn't work out, they'll refund your money. Simple as that. So head over to sandlandsleep.com and use our special discount code for 15% off, smartpeople15. One last time, that's smartpeople15 at sandlandsleep.com. And now back to the episode.
1: We did touch on it, but I don't know if we did so at the depth that is relevant. So walk me through perhaps that process and and, and a real one, like uh, what is a common process that you see in your practice that follows that arc where, you know, how does it start and then what does it manifest into?
2: Uh, the recent pandemic and then the prior um, administration with President Trump mm-hmm. and all of all that that meant to people mm-hmm. gives a good example of this. And, and I can think of particular people who are struggling with this. What happened, I think, now this started a long, long time ago, probably when television or radio was created, but it really took off in the last decade or so. And that is uh, information being put out over Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and other platforms very easily worldwide that's not true. So misinformation and disinformation. How do we know what's true when well, we we'll read it? is the big question. And a lot of people have trouble with that. So they, they tend to rely on who do I trust? Do I trust this person? Or do I trust that person to know what's true? Do I trust the media? Do I trust the president? That kind of thing. Rather than, rather than um, and this is somewhat of an aside, but rather than learning how to think about something. So how to determine if something is probably true, rather than who to trust. But since there's a lot of people just trusting about what's true. They don't know for sure. And there's there's this kind of uncertainty going on. And they don't know. And, that, and so you see conspiracy theories grow. And real theories grow about problems in the world. Well, that uncertainty is because of... Or it generates fear. Fear tends to generate anxiety. So in, in the face of that fear of uncertainty, B... So I just talked about A, the context. B is the fear and uncertainty. C is anxiety. And what that means is in the face of this uncertainty, we naturally turn on our radar and we're looking in all directions for the threat. Threat meaning what's real? Are the vaccines dangerous? Are they safe? Is the CDC being honest? Uh, Is the president stating the truth, Are, you know, is the Washington Post reporting the truth? Those kinds of questions that really can't be answered really easily create a lot of fear. And so anxiety, we do anxiety. We take on a very hypervigilant posture in our cognitive and physiological status and, and uh, our posture itself in order to find out that answer. But we can never find out for sure. And so if our goal is to get certainty, we're stuck in this anxiety loop. And it just spirals upward, and it can, get into, it can cause panic attacks, psychosis, depending on how intense it is. We're constantly looking, and we're not finding the answer, but we're convinced there's a threat. So we keep looking, and we keep coming up with possibilities that make sense, but may not be true. But then we realize there's all kinds of possibilities that may be true. So which one do I pick? And we don't know how to decide on that. That's one example of what I've seen in private practice with people who would get diagnosed with an anxiety disorder and the meaning of all of that gets ignored.
1: That makes a little more sense if we do anxiety. So we have fear. We do things to lessen that fear. How much of it comes down to a want to go back to comfort or homeostasis? How much of this output we call mental illness is the inability to want to deal
2: with uncomfortable thoughts and emotions. So if you're any kind of pain, emotional pain, physical pain, it's only natural that we want to, we, we, you know, we try to get away from the pain. If you put your hand on a hot stove, you don't think, "Wow, my hand's on a hot stove and it is burning. I think I'll pick it up. You don't do that. You just automatically recoil from that. Same thing happens with emotional pain. It's, it's a naturally uncomfortable feeling, so we want to be comforted. And so we try to get comfort by doing C, by doing something in an attempt to get comfort. Some things do provide comfort, so some of the C's are helpful. So if I'm sad, getting with a friend and talking about it does provide comfort. And there's not really any negative consequences of that. But if I'm sad and instead of getting with a friend, I go crawl in bed for days on end, I'm getting comfort. But it's, it's an immediate sense of comfort that is fleeting. And it provides more pain to my life over time. I'm going to feel lethargic. I might feel guilty. I might lose a job. I might get, you know, my wife might be upset with me. There's all kinds of things that come as consequences of staying in bed. In other words, doing depression that just feed back into my desire to stay in bed even more. So, yeah, I think it is a search for comfort, but I think that's just a natural thing. All organisms want comfort, whether it's, you know, humans are interesting because some of our comfort doesn't look comfortable because we're so individualized and it's the meaning of what we do. So I might sacrifice something for my children that provides me comfort, even though it's a sacrifice. That sounds paradoxical. People do a lot of things that are painful for comfort. So we're not just dogs. You know, dogs, if you hurt a dog, they feel pain, they try to get away from it. They don't think, well, I think I'll let myself be hurt here for the benefit of my master, you know, that kind of thing. But we do that. We decide to do painful things and feel comfort in it because of the, it's helping, say, our children or it's helping the world. That's what philanthropy is all about. You know, giving money away looks painful to people who don't have it, especially but it actually provides comfort knowing that you're helping. You know, if
1: you're doing anxiety, the things you're doing are uncomfortable. So you're doing uncomfortable things to find comfort?
2: You're doing something to get immediate comfort and but it's fleeting. Ah, and then leads to discomfort so you're back at B again and you keep doing anxiety to try to get rid of that but it causes more discomfort so you're back to be again it just keeps cycling right so with anxiety, think of anxiety I, I use this analogy in the book think of anxiety as treading water in deep water you're treading if you've done that you know how exhausting it is and you're doing it just to breathe but you got to keep doing it so you feel comfort that you're breathing but you're also getting exhausted. Anxiety is like that. All you're doing is sitting still, maintaining this, this momentary sense of comfort of, I'm for, with anxiety, it's I'm prepared. I'm preparing for something. I'm guarding against something, even though you don't see it. And you don't even know what it is, but you're convinced it's out there. So you have your eyes open, your radar on and everywhere. But obviously that's cognitively exhausting and physiologically exhausting too. That's why there's so many physiological components to anxiety so yeah so there's a comfort but it's fleeting and leads to more discomfort that those c's are problematic there are c's that aren't like that like i said talking to a friend there's other you know going for a walk deciding to change your life in some way eating better structuring your life differently there's all kinds of things you can do that do provide lasting comfort when you know this idea and you can
1: own it it doesn't make it better. In some senses, it actually makes it more difficult because now you're aware, this is my own, this is of my own doing. And so the thing about it is it's so ingrained. If it's gotten to this point where it's extremely noticeable, maybe can be coined an illness, however we want to talk about it, it feels like it's such a part of you that it's not something you can change. It's not something you have control over. And that's where the division in my mind occurs, which is knowing that I have control, but not feeling like I have control. What do you say to that? those people? Because
2: I'm sure they're listening. Well, we, we can talk about the feeling of being out of control, but it is, unless someone can present to me some kind of um, some evidence that shows or what is it that gets in the way of you putting the cigarette down? What is it that gets in the way that stops you, prevents you from putting that piece of pizza down? What is it that gets in the way of saying hello to someone? There, I mean, all these decisions we make in life, we have the ability to do otherwise. Nothing nothing that I know of dictates or prevents action, including thought action. Now, I don't want this to sound like I'm saying it's easy to do otherwise, because it's not. And I also want to get rid of the concept of blame or fault. I'm not talking about someone being blameworthy. It's their own fault. That's, to me, that concept doesn't have any use other than to hurt people. But the you know it, the reality is when I used to smoke like a fiend, I had the ability to quit smoking, and I didn't realize that. I know this feeling of I don't have the ability, because I thought that when I was smoking. But like I'm addicted, right? We have this nice word called addicted, and we argue over whether someone is addicted to something or not, as if there's some real way to determine the difference. All that word addicted means is I have an incredibly strong desire to do something, an urge to do something. In my case, it was smoking. And it's when I realized that I was smoking because I did not desire the consequences of not smoking. That's when I stopped smoking. It took a long time, though. It took about a year of constant struggle with that, of trying to convince myself whether it was really a problem to smoke or not. I mean, I fell for all, all of the uh, things you hear about when well, my grandmother smoked till she was 105 and didn't hurt her. So to me, that was evidence that smoking was fine. It, was, it wasn't until I realized I had the ability. I just wasn't willing to put up with the, the crap that comes afterwards, understandably. That's why I stopped successfully. Where
1: would you have people start if they're trying to deal with a perceived mental illness, what we call mental illness?
2: Well, I, I try to get them to think in terms of that simple model I presented, the ABC model, and to focus on B. So let's take depression. Um, so there's usually a sadness of some sort of disappointment in life, maybe disappointment about a specific thing or event. And in response to that painful feeling, we typically recoil from life or, or start a, sort of a passive um, strategy in life. We just shut down. That's why I see people stay in bed and they, they uh, reject social invitations. They just don't, don't do anything that used to make them feel good before. They don't watch shows that they like. They don't read it. whatever it is liked to do. They don't see the purpose in that it, because life seems so disappointing. They just shut down and be passive. Like the ostrich with the, its head in the sand in an attempt to make that disappointment of life go away but that disappointment in life is really meaningful it's saying something about your life and so where i would try to, what i would try to do is get them to back up to be and explore that more what is disappointing are there specific things is it your marriage is it your job is it the way you are um it may be an existential thing right you know, you've know, you often heard people wonder, why are we doing this anyways? Why are you and I here talking right now? Why are the listeners listening? We're all going to end within a few decades, really. And, and if we just broaden our time view, the whole solar system's going to get burned up in a few billion years. So what's this all about? I mean, even the most impactful people from Plato and Aristotle to uh you know, George Washington and other leaders in the world that are well known, they're gonna be forgotten at some point. All they did, all we do, all everyone does is just gonna be burned up and thrown away. So why are we doing this? That that realization brings a lot of sadness and a lot of disappointment. But if you don't pay attention to it and explore it more, it can lead to you just on depression. You know. It's, uh, nothing's worth it. I'm just going to stay in bed. I don't care. That kind of an attitude. That's depression happening. But many people can realize that disappointment in life and still go forward and find a meaningful life in the time that they have left. Instead of responding to this disappointment and depression, you can respond to it by paying attention to it and exploring it and wondering about it and coming up with different ideas of how to deal with it You can do that. I'm not saying you have to. Let's say
1: somebody is doing this on their own at home, right? They've gotten past Mm -hmm. the point of, okay, Mm -hmm. it's not an illness, so I don't need a pill to fix it. I can fix it. I have the ability to fix it. Where can they start? How can
2: they start? We can't choose emotions. They happen based on what we perceive in the world. They just, they're just connected. If we perceive a loss, we feel sadness. If we perceive a threat, we feel fear. They go together. So if we listen to the emotion, we have some idea of what's meaningfully going on right now. We can choose how to think about it, and we can choose how to act in response to it, although it's incredibly difficult to do that. I mean, we, I use the smoking example a lot because it's a really simple thing, a really relatively minor problem, That is incredibly difficult to do, but we know how to do it. We know what to do in response. You know, I know how to say, you know, smoking does increase my risk of heart disease. Right? But I'd have to be willing to think that at the moment I light up. I know how to throw away a pack of cigarettes. I know how to not buy cigarettes. I know those things. I have to be willing to do those things. So it's not really, there's not really a technique. I mean, I find that a lot of times people come to us looking for some way around this reality, right? Looking for some trick or some, it's like the diet industry, right? All diet industry products fail because they're avoiding the reality of lifelong eating habits. It's because they never address this real problem with eating and that is how do you use food? What do you use it for? How much do you eat? Why do you eat? Those kinds of things for the rest of your life. Not so that I can fit into my bikini by summertime. There's no way around that. There's no diet. There's no technique. There's no therapy that can help people avoid these really difficult dilemmas in life of what to do about this emotional pain whether it's uh, the realization of death or whether it's stopping smoking. There's no right. trick, right? And that's what m- many people, I think maybe most people are really looking for that. I, wanna, I want this to be easier. But What they find out, at least when they work with me, is it's harder. Because I, I, I do emphasize this idea that the burden is on your shoulders. You have the ability, you have to think about your willingness to put up with and tolerate the consequences of doing certain things. And obviously, being with others does help. Learning about things does help. But it comes down, most of these problems comes down really to a a decision or decisions that are very, very difficult to to make. You know,
1: at the core of this, I think it's something we touched on, but I I wanted to get into it more. You're calling it willingness. I really like the simplicity of the word want. I know you and I talked many times and when that word would come up, you would almost flag it, uh, almost always flag it. And it stuck with me. So many people listening will say things like, I want to quit smoking. I just can't. Or I want to feel this way. I, I want to not do this. I want," And you would often say, you don't want to. If you wanted to, you would do it. Explain that to me.
2: Well, this is a problem with our, um, our ability to think. You know, humans, we have this self-reflexive ability. We can think about thinking, and we can, we can sort of parse reality out into little boxes and only live in one box and ignore the rest of the boxes and things like that. And that's what's happening here. So I understand. So I, And I say this, too, in, in colloquial language. You know, I want to, whatever, I want to go mow the grass. But I'm sitting here not mowing the grass. Really what that's saying is, I have a desire for that grass to be mown, (laughs) but I'm not paying attention to all the things that go into mowing it when I say I want to mow it. I'm looking at just this one little piece. It's like, think of life as a big jigsaw puzzle, and I'm looking at one piece, and I just want that one piece. I don't want all the pieces that touch it, though, and you can't do that in life. When you pull the one piece, the rest of the puzzle comes with it when we say i want to but i can't that's what we're doing we're saying i want to in a fantasy world kind of way i want to i want to write a book and then i don't write one why it's incredibly difficult to write a book it turns out um a lot harder than i thought it was going to be so as i start i told you i started writing the book in 2005 and it took until 2020 to publish it so you know 15 years of just this Gosh, back and forth until whatever happened, it led to the final result. My point is, is that life, you can't take pieces of life. You have to take everything that touches that piece and then everything that touches those pieces. When, you, when you're thinking of in terms of what you desire, think that way. What do I desire given the way the world works? So I desire this recognizing it comes with this, and I also desire that stuff, too. When you can say that, then you'll stop or start whatever you're saying you desire. If you can think about it that way, that it comes as a package.
0: And now a quick word from one of this week's sponsors. This week's episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs. With spring in the air, it's a time of renewal and growth, personally and professionally. As your small business grows, LinkedIn Jobs is here to make it easier to find the people you want to talk to faster and for free. Create a free job post in minutes on LinkedIn Jobs to reach your network and beyond to the world's largest professional network of over 810 million people. Then add your job in the purple hashtag hiring frame to your LinkedIn profile to spread the word that you're hiring so your network can help you find the right people to hire. Simple tools like screening questions make it easy to focus on candidates with just the right skills and experience, so you can quickly prioritize who you'd like to interview and hire. It's why small businesses rate LinkedIn Jobs number one in delivering quality hires for its leading competitors. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the candidates you want to talk to faster. Did you know every week, nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn? Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash smart. That's linkedin.com slash smart to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. And now back to the episode. What is the harm in thinking
1: about wants in terms of output without thinking about the input and reality that goes into it?
2: Nothing as long as you're you're willing or as long as you recognize that's what you're doing, we say all kinds of things i so for instance, I say, "Gosh, I have to get up and go take care of that right something like that. I really don't have to. there's no cosmic requirement, but I realize I don't mean that literally when I say I have to or I must or I should. It's just colloquial. we just talk that way it's it's the way we so we say the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, and we all agree on that, right? Even though that's not true. The sun doesn't rise up and down. But we use that in a colloquial sense just to get along in life, to, you know, to coordinate our actions. And we say things like, I have to do this, I want to do that, in the same way. We get into trouble when we think that's literal, and we get into these quandaries about, why can't I just quit smoking? That's not even true, though, that I can't quit. I can quit. I just don't want to. Right. That's where, we get, that's where the language gets us into trouble, is we think it's literal. We, we confuse the words we use with the reality we live in, and they're not the same. So
1: this, I feel like, wraps so much into what we were talking about as it relates to extreme emotions. And I don't know, look, maybe I'm asking the same question six ways. And I don't know if I'm going to get an answer on it, but I'm going to keep trying. Let's say people know they're struggling with something. How do we get them to recognize the things they're doing that are not helpful? How do we get them to recognize their patterns and the root cause of an issue when so many are going to doctors asking them to tell them the root cause of the issue and they're not getting it? They're getting a pill or they're getting a
2: diagnosis. Other than what we're trying to do to spread this word, um, about this charade, as I would call it, that these things are illnesses to be treated by medical professionals in medical ways and thought about as a, you know, symptoms and a diagnosis and treatment and prognosis and all of that kind of stuff. Um, that clearly doesn't have any kind of justification other than if we just want to redefine what illness means. So if we want to say, and, and by the way, many people within the field of psychiatry and clinical psychology have done this. Illness is any kind of sense of unease, any kind of sense of unwell. That's why it's ill, right? It's a feeling. It's not necessarily a disease. So there's a separation between the idea of disease versus illness. Disease is something that happens, something goes wrong in the, with the person. Illness is what we feel. So if I'm struggling with um, my life, and, you know, I think I've come to a place where, you know, I didn't expect to be here this time in my life. I expected to be further on in my life and make more money, whatever it is, have better relationships, whatever my, whatever's missing, right? That is a bad feeling. But is that an illness, despite any kind of lack of disease process in the body, would that still be considered a medically uh, conceived illness for medical professionals to assess and treat? That's a judgment call. That's just a subjective judgment call about what we value in terms of what we want to call an illness and hand over to the medical profession to help us with. I don't see why a medical professional, though, or how a medical professional would have any kind of expertise to deal with that because that's not a you know it's, there's not not a scientific thing about that right that's a personal sense and a personal about personal values and desires and so forth well, unless we change the definition of illness um don't go to a don't go to a medical doctor to deal with these problems they don't they're just what they're going to do is either drug you or try to cajole you into some sort of what's called healthy living uh that really isn't about healthy living it's really about you shutting up about your problems and looking like well, you're happy so we're all better you know we feel better about it because you're not complaining anymore
1: it makes sense and again you talk about this a lot in your book we talked about it in the last episode that you know the the various names we give these extreme emotions or the behaviors we do because of these extreme emotions then become diagnoses um, but if the common names we know them by aren't what they actually are, help us define the experience so those who have it can identify it more easily.
2: Now, this is in the second half of the book. I do actually touch on those four anxiety, depression, bipolar disorder, and schizophrenia. And each of them, I already talked about anxiety and depression. Uh, you know, anxiety and depression are like opposite reactions to the same painful emotion. Uh, to to emotional pain, not the same emotion. One is taken on a strategy of passivity with depression in order to attempt to get rid of the sadness in life, disappointment in life. The other, anxiety, is an attempt to take on the opposite, a very active and hypervigilant strategy in order to defend or guard or protect against perceived threats in life. Neither one of them work except in the immediate term so it feels good to jump in bed and pull the covers over your head but then that that quickly goes away. You can fall asleep but you wake back up and there's your life still waiting for you and now you feel even worse for having done that. With anxiety, take on a hypervigilant posture and you get this this treading water feeling like I'm taking care of this, I'm protecting it against this even though I'm not moving away from the deep end. I'm just sitting in the deep end treading water and because it over anxiety overwhelms your attentional capacity, you're trying to think of so many things at once, you tend to make mistakes. So you forget where you left your keys, and you forget an appointment. And you, you, know, you forget someone's name because you're doing anxiety while they're introducing themselves. And so those provide more fear, re- realization that, oh my God, I can't remember that word. Maybe I have dementia. Um, and it just spirals up instead of down like in depression. With schizophrenia... It's sort of like taking on, it's in, in the face of this overwhelming emotional pain in life, and this is chronic, I'm not talking about acute moments of pain, this is a ongoing stuff. We start wondering whether we're viewing the world right. And we start, we start considering different ideas. Well, maybe the world isn't this way that I thought it was, it's this way. We start taking on a new reality or considering it. And depending on how isolated we are from others, that can really grow with a person to the point that hallucinations, what we call delusions, develop. Because you're with yourself so long and you're thinking so much about things, you know as well as I do, we can hear our thoughts. If you do that constantly in the face of a lot of trauma and pain in your life, that can develop into what we see and what we end up calling schizophrenia. Now, the the diagnosis of schizophrenia is really loose. I've seen all kinds of people diagnosed with schizophrenia. It doesn't make any any sense, even when looking at the industry standards. With bipolar disorder, I see bipolar disorder as a strategy of trying to, um, how would I put this, refusing to live within biological and social limits. It's basically a refusal to let excitement go away. So when we do things that are exciting, when you're doing your work and you feel really good about it, it feels good. So we keep doing it. But the problem is, is we're humans and we have limitations, both biological and social. So we need sleep, for example. If you don't have sleep, you're going to cause all kinds of problems down the road. We have money in our society. And when you spend money, you get things. But if you keep spending money and get things, which feels good, you end up going bankrupt or having problems there. Everything is like that in life. We, we have exciting things to do, and if we refuse to say, okay, it's time to stop doing this exciting thing, basically, and I'll start back up tomorrow, if we don't do that, if we just keep it going, trying to keep it going and keeping it going, we end up doing things that you either get burned out biologically, or you get arrested, or you go bankrupt, or you piss off a lot of people, and you get labeled bipolar. Because you're, you're trying to make that manic thing go forever, but it's going to come down. And when you hit that, that peak, you come crashing down and the sense is nothing's worth it. I've tried my best and it doesn't work. The hell with it all. Then you're down into the depression part and you take on that passive strategy. But then something piques your interest at some point and it goes back up. And instead of, instead of realizing that life is kind of like in the middle with these sometimes really high peaks and high lows, but it most of the time it's it's hovering around the middle somewhere. That's boring for a lot of people. Life has to be something, you know, amazing, fantastic, and I'm going to find it. That's that's the bipolar strategy. So that's how I define, or or how I describe those four, and I, I would be able to take any of the diagnostic categories and Like describe it in that kind of way. Each one seems to have, each broad diagnostic category has its own theme of strategy on how to get rid of a painful emotion. Whether it's fear, disgust, shame, sadness, whatever it is.
1: I'm glad you brought up that idea. For those who can't watch us but hear us, the wave, what is that, like a sine
2: wave? Is that what the... Up and down, yeah. Things go up and down, right
1: imagine like a sine wave. Uh, you mentioned that to me once in a conversation and I find it comforting and I've heard it in different ways to recognize that the highs are as temporary as the lows mm-hmm. to an extent.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, I remember you saying, but try to keep it from, from getting out of that normal wave, right? When, it, when you seek for the ups to keep going, you get into that kind of manic stage. When you have the lows keep going, you get into that depressive stage. Mm -hmm. I found that to be a useful mechanism for recognizing emotions as temporary and fleeting and then allowing almost a cosmic understanding that there will be a tomorrow.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: I don't know why that would help though. Why it would help with It does. But why, why does it help? Why does it help deal with extreme emotions?
2: Well, it it um, I guess provides a roadmap for you as you're living your life. That when you're when it's eleven o'clock at night and you're on a roll with some project, to say, "Whoa, wait a minute! It's eleven o'clock at night. I got to get up at six tomorrow, right? Time to go to bed." So if I stay up till three working on the project, and then I don't even think three is good enough, so I'll stay up to six, and I'll say, "Well, the hell with it! I'll just stay up all night and just." right? I mean, we used to do that in college. we just stay up all night and plan for an exam. Um, That isn't helpful to do that, to exceed those limits. So it's just keeping these limits in mind is what I'm suggesting. There are biological and social limits. You piss off people if you do things too much, right? You go bankrupt if you spend too much money. You you have sleep uh, deprivation, psychosis if you don't sleep For a few days, there there are things that will happen that aren't going to be fun for you if you don't pay attention and abide in some way by these limits.
1: In talking to you, one of the analogies I can't get out of my head is this idea that we are all living in a game that has rules and recognizing you have to play by these rules or you, you, you will play by the rules. There's no way around it. In some sense helps, and in the other, adds to that existential dread because you might disagree with those rules.
2: Yeah. Have you ever thought about it that way? Yeah. There, there is no way to work outside the rules. One way or another, you're going to be subjected to those rules. You could do it voluntarily, or you can have it happen involuntarily. You know, we see this in, in addictions, right? That's the whole idea about addictions. All addictive things feel good, right? So it's food, drugs, alcohol, sex, right? Right. They feel good. They're supposed to feel good. That's what life is like. So the addiction occurs when we just want to keep it going. Keep eating, keep drinking, constant sex, whatever the thing that feels good, we just want to keep it going indefinitely. And you know what happens in every one of those situations. If you, At some point, you'll crash. You'll get arrested, you'll crash, or do something that's going to force the consequences upon you.
1: That doesn't make me feel better necessarily. <laughs> not that that was your goal, but you know, it just, it's a little stressful. So how do we help those around us if we recognize this, if we believe this, uh, but it's not what the world at large is perpetrating?
2: It's important to um, I guess we would call it validating the emotion that someone's having. But what we're basically doing is we're we're explaining that the emotion you're experiencing is not the problem. It's okay. You're human. You're experiencing this emotion. Listen to it. Pay attention to it. What is it saying? Because any emotion is always saying something. Again, sadness says there's a loss. That, that group of, of emotions, sadness, disappointment, despair, that kind of thing usually means there's some kind of loss, something you don't have that you want or something you had that you lost. Fear, obviously, is about something that might be threatening the person. Now, it could be all kinds of threats, everything from a lion to self-esteem threats, right? Shame tells you that there was something you were just doing very pridefully and then the rug was pulled out from underneath you and you realize that that's not how people see that thing. So every emotion has a meaning behind it. And so if we, if our goal, which unfortunately the mainstream industry's goal is to eliminate emotion, that's what psychiatric drugs do. They prevent the brain from doing what it naturally does that we experience as an emotion. So if you don't feel emotions as much or not at all, depending on the dosage you're getting, then you're not going to respond to that painful feeling. That's how, that's the whole idea behind psychiatric drugs. And by the way, electroshock therapy and some other forms of, of psychiatric treatment is to make the feeling itself, the, the B and the ABC model, to make that numb so you don't notice it. So if I don't feel sad, then I'm not going to recoil in depression. And so when we see people given drugs like that and they don't uh, endorse the symptoms of depression, we say that's an effective treatment. But what do we do? It, it's really human engineering. It's we're preventing you from feeling what it's like to be human now you don't complain about that obviously because you don't feel the problem and we say that's effective treatment well we're not treating anything we're just preventing you from feeling right and feeling is where meaning resides it doesn't reside anywhere else so if you get that's rid what of, i was going to you know, ask yeah when you get rid of the feeling there's what's what is motivating you what's driving your life there's, there's little or none driving your life anymore, depending, again, on the dosage. Some dosages aren't going to have that big of an effect. And I mean, we know from research that most psychiatric drug effectiveness is, is because of the placebo effect. Um, so, you know, there may be a little bit of effect of taking a drug for some people at lower doses, you know, that kind of thing. But that's how it works. It doesn't correct some chemical imbalance. It doesn't correct something deficient in the body or in the brain. It just deadens your ability to feel emotion. That's it. The stimulant drugs like Ritalin they increase your ability. They, they increase central nervous system activity. So they provide the excitement to pay attention to something. And it would work with anybody. It's, it's no different than my coffee every morning. You know, I, I have my coffee and I can think really sharply, <clears throat> but at my age, that goes away somewhere around three o'clock in the afternoon to four o'clock. And I'm not going to keep drinking coffee to get that back because then I won't sleep. Right. There's other problems associated with that. But that's how the drugs work is they they artificially, unnaturally interfere. They actually create a chemical imbalance in the brain. They create a chemical um, composition that isn't there naturally so that you won't feel or you will feel things that you didn't originally Naturally.
1: Well, and I think the argument, and we tackled this in episode one, not maybe at length, is what if the people who need them, let's say need them, their chemical imbalance is there to begin with. And these drugs actually bring it to a better
2: average equilibrium. Yeah, but that's not true. People can believe that, but it's right. not true. There's a lot of things people believe that aren't true. Right. In this one, this chemical imbalance theory is 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 a um, it's almost absurd because the leaders in the conventional field. Just yesterday, I saw another uh, article written by uh, Ronald Pies. He since two thousand, I think ten or so, he's been saying that hey, listen, we've never. We've never uh, marketed this idea of a chemical imbalance for mental illness. No one, no well reasoned and educated psychiatrist would has ever thought that, and has ever told that to anybody. That, frankly, just BS. Yeah. To this day, if you go on APA's website, it says right in there that it's thought to be due to chemical changes in the brain, blah blah, you know, things like that. They they've sort of come away from the term imbalance. They they don't say that anymore, but they do say. It's thought that chemical, I don't know if they say changes, there's another word they use, but it kind of softened it up. But they're still saying that. And frankly, if you go to a psychiatrist and get a prescription today, that's exactly what they'll tell you. If you ask them, why am I taking this? They'll say, well, it's going to correct a chemical imbalance in your brain. So even though the leaders of the field, and it's not just Dr. Pies, it's many, many people say this is ridiculous, you know, this, this complaint against us for perpetuating this chemical imbalance theory is silly, it's just it's a bizarre, because they still do it constantly, constantly, constantly. It just isn't true. There's no evidence of any kind of chemical imbalance that's causing these problems. There are chemical changes, and I know we got into this at the last episode, and it's a, lo- a, a long conversation, but there are clearly chemical changes occurring in the brain when people are doing depression or anxiety, but... There are chemical changes in the brain when we do anything. You and I are causing chemical changes to occur, but that doesn't make what we're doing an illness just because there's some kind of chemical change going on.
1: I can't can't let this go without asking, because I love, let's go back to the analogy of we're in a game where there's rules. If we can take a PED, right, a performance enhancing drug that allows us to circumvent some of those
2: rules, what is the necessary harm? No, I mean, there could be. I guess there could be a chemical harm depending on the drug itself, right? Right. But I think you're asking me, what's wrong with that? Yeah. yeah. Nothing. I don't care if someone decides to do that. What I care about is that, that it's, not, it's not portrayed that way to people who are taking psychiatric drugs. They're not being told, listen, nothing's wrong with your brain. You're experiencing a, a natural human problem. Um, and if you want, I can give you this drug so you won't notice that problem, but it's basically a performance enhancing drug. It's not correcting anything in your body. I have no problem with that. I'm not an anti drug person. I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm an advocate for legalizing drugs and kind of uh, getting rid of some prescription privilege issues. It's, it's the informed consent part that troubles me is that we, we, the population are being lied to. Convinced that we have a chemical imbalance and an illness in our brain usually. And that if you take this drug, it'll correct it and you'll be cured of depression. And I think that's false. All of that is false.
1: Well, and I remember touching on that in the first episode, but not not to this extent. What I love about that is imagine the first time somebody goes to a psychiatrist, a, a doctor with one of these extreme emotions. And the doctor says, you can either try to solve this, try to experience this and work through it. Or you can take this drug, which will allow you to no longer feel it. You pick. That's a much different choice. Much different choice. Mm -hmm. Because oftentimes it's framed as you have this happening and this will help. That's it. No context. I don't even think it's always you have a chemical imbalance. It's just, you have this problem, this will help. The same way you have a herniated disc, this Advil will help, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But when you frame it that way, you at least allow people to ask themselves, is this something I want to deal with and work on, or is it something I want to ignore?
2: Exactly. Hmm. I'm all for that. That's fascinating. And we all get to choose how we deal with the problems in our lives. If we decide to go stop at the local bar and have a few shots to calm down, great. But don't think that you're treating an illness by doing that. If we want to smoke weed, fine, go do it, whether it's medical or not. But that's another issue that's kind of silly. But
1: um... <laughs> How much of the assumption is a function of necessity for the system to perpetuate? Because... Let's assume we snap our fingers and everybody says, there's nothing physiologically wrong with you. This is an extreme emotion. It is very troubling, but there is nothing uh, physiologically wrong with you. Now, all of a sudden, does it become a lot more difficult to justify being a psychiatrist, for example?
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. it, It is a threat to the professions. Mine too. My my profession is psychology, clinical, I was trained as a clinical psychologist, but the profession of psychology is threatened by this view. And psychiatry and clinical social work and clinical counseling, they're all threatened by this view. In a way, I realize I'm, you know, I'm shooting myself in the foot by doing this, but um, I just, I, I think it's important enough to, to portray it this way, to portray it the way it is.
1: See, the the way the reason I get confused is if it is a struggle of the mind, then I would definitely want to go to somebody who can help me deal with the struggle of the mind, which mm-hmm. would, in my mind, be a psychologist or a social worker or a coach or whatever. But there's really,
2: regarding that struggle of the mind, all those professions, that's all those professions Bailey work. Right. They, Except they, psychiatry. No psychiatry's taking that on. I mean, I just there's an article in uh, what is it, Psychiatric Times yesterday, I think it was, that psychiatry is now looking at the misinformation and disinformation problem that I, we talked about earlier today, and thinking of it in terms of an immunological problem. And they're calling, yeah, yeah, right. That's what, what that they're looking at it with a medical model to help people think correctly. And the reason they don't think correctly is they're infected with, and this is true, this is in the article, parasites of the mind. And these parasites are, I don't know, it's a, you know, it's another kind of ghostly idea that there are these parasites of the mind that prevent you from thinking correctly and critically. And so it's a matter for psychiatry to handle. I was I was astounded at that when I
1: you there. have to
2: be kidding me it's called cognitive immunology i think is the phrase yeah so just like but that's psychiatry but the other mental health professions are kind of scooping up problems in living No, disinformation misinformation that's a problem politics is a problem economics they're all problems but the mental health industry is trying to scoop up all of them as problems and calling them illnesses, or at least seeing them through a medical model for a medical approach to dealing with them. Yeah, parasites of the mind. Now, if that were metaphorical, I understand, but we're not good. Our profession is not good at keeping metaphor and literal concepts apart. We, we mix them together and confuse people. Yeah. So that's uh, that's scary. And it just it portends some, you know, what's going to come. We're going to see more. We're going to see diagnoses now, I'm sure, in the next revision of the DSM that includes some kind of mind parasite or, you know, misinformation disorder or, you know, things like that. Right. Wow. Well,
1: at least we've got people like you out there fighting the good fight, Chuck. I have to say, you know, over our conversations, you have definitely changed my perspective on it to one that is much more about ownership. And like we, where we started, I don't think it makes it easier. I just feel like it makes it empowered or right, you know, just correct.
2: And, and again, I want to emphasize it because I get, I get uh, criticized for this. I'm not saying mental illness doesn't exist. I'm saying it's not an illness. I'm not saying it's easy to do differently. It's incredibly hard to do differently and actually the approach that I'm advocating makes it even harder to do differently. It's not an easy thing to do, but it is many times a simple thing like smoking, you know, stopping smoking. It's pretty simple, straightforward. It's just damn hard to do it. So I don't want to confuse people by I'm saying, oh, it's, it's or and I don't want to make people think that it's their fault, because I'm not talking about fault or blame. I'm just saying, It is your decisions that will change the course for you. It's deciding differently, it's thinking differently and acting differently, doing differently in the face of these existential realities we are faced in life.
1: Chuck, first of all, thank you so much for being back on the show. For those listening who want to dig in, who have not gotten enough out of our, at this point, close to three hours of smart people podcast. There is so much more, extremely well-written in the book, Smoke and Mirrors, How You Are Being Fooled About Mental Illness, An Insider's Warning to Consumers. I like it, Chuck. I like it. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, Chuck, anywhere you want people to go outside of, you know, we'll link to the book, but, um, or are you just kind of back in your,
2: back in your world doing what you do? I am in my world doing what I do, and um, if they want to, they can go to my website. It's uh, just a brief overview of how I see things, and the website is chuckruby.com. Um, they can also go to the website of a nonprofit that I'm the executive director of. It's the International Society for Ethical Psychology and Psychiatry, and the website is psychintegrity.org or isep.com. I s e p p dot Uh, And there you can read about uh, some of the things we're trying to do. Basically, ICEP is a uh, it's an attempt to get the conversation going along these lines to try to get the word out to consumers and to try to change the mental health field in some way to make it more humane, more helpful, less harmful to people.
1: I love it. We will link to that, Chuck. Thanks again.
2: Anytime. This week's guest was Dr.
0: Chuck Ruby. And you can find Dr. Ruby's newest book, Smoke and Mirrors, How You Are Being Fooled About Mental Illness an Insider's Warning to Consumers, wherever books are sold. As always, the episode was hosted by Chris Stemp and produced by yours truly, John Rojas. If you'd like to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. If you enjoy the podcast and you want to support us financially, you can head over to patreon.com/smartpeoplepodcast. And of course, if you want to stay up to date with all things Smart People Podcast, head over to the website and sign up for the newsletter. All right, that's it for us this week. Make sure you stay tuned cuz we've got a lot of great interviews coming up, and we'll see you all next episode.